All right, let's take our Bible and turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And I hate having to talk about that. I wish it wasn't the reality, but, you know, that's where we are today. That's where we live. And so uh, it's got to be something has to be addressed. Week four of our series, The Four Pillars of Financial Strength. And uh, when you read the Bible, it's abundantly clear that God is very, very passionate about you and I having financial strength because it does so much for our lives. And we're going to see that even more clearly uh, starting next week. But I don't know if y'all have noticed, but the country's mood has been pretty down as of late. And you think, what might make Americans happier? If you ask most Americans, they're going to say more money. All right. And who wouldn't believe that? But back in August, there's a financial consulting group called Empower. <clears throat> they conducted a survey of over 2,000 Americans, and they asked Americans, uh, can money buy happiness? And 60% of Americans said, yes, it can. All right. And so uh, the share was highest among millennials, uh, you know, those people that are you know, in their 20s and 30s right now. 72% of our younger people said, yeah, I think money can buy happiness. And it was lowest among what you might call the greatest generation, the builder generation. Less than half, 46%, say they believe that money can buy happiness. That's probably because they have money and the millennials don't, okay? But it begs the question. They asked then, what salary would you need to feel happier? And look at this chart. This is really amazing. Americans at almost every economic level, they all agree, I need about twenty to 30000 more dollars a year to be happy. And if you notice, though, that you know, nobody is happy. They always need a little bit more. But look at the people at the bottom. The people who have the most money, look how long that delta is, that bar at the bottom. The people at the bottom of the chart, those making 150000 or more, or those making 200000 or more, they actually need a lot more money to be happy than the other people who, okay, most, most everybody else. Isn't that remarkable? It's almost as if the more you have, the more you want, which, by the way, is exactly what Solomon tells us over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. No matter how much they make, most Americans believe, if I just had a little bit more, then I would be more happy. And this insane longing for more, it drives us to overwork, overspend, overcommit, and overdo. And in the midst of all the hustle, the hurry, and the heartbreak, most human beings overlook a vital truth. And that is this. Hebrews 13 says, this world is not our home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. All right? Hebrews 13, 14. And so the third pillar of financial strength is this whole idea of detachment. Detachment. All right. And I just have to tell you this morning, I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is, a, this is such a big topic. This affects all of our lives, not just how we spend our money, but how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, the affections of our heart, everything. And I just, I just feel so inadequate in this area because I struggle so much with this as well. You know, being detached from this present world and thinking more about the eternal things to come than the present things that are. But that is where we are going to be going today. And I just want to ask you to be, be really ha have your heart uh, you know, really soft and tender toward this today because this, I don't know if there's a more important topic in the Christian life than this whole idea of detachment. Romans 13, you know, if you're a Roman citizen back in Paul's time in history, uh, government was so unfair. Every time you turned around, there was some kind of a tax, there was some kind of a fee, 
for something. Paying taxes required one-third of most people's income, which, by the way, that's also true for Americans today. Between one-third and 40% of most people's income is going to pay taxes of some kind. And the Roman tax laws benefited the wealthy, and the common folks were angry. They were saying, we need more money. Y'all are taking all of our money. And so inspired by the Spirit of God, Paul simply and directly tells the Roman citizens, you need to pay your taxes, all right? Because God has instituted the governments that we have. And in a context of this, the apostle, uh, the Holy Spirit moves the apostle Paul to kind of more broadly talk about financial stewardship in general, because our Father in heaven wants us to be a good steward or a, or a good manager of the resources that he places in our hands. And so Romans chapter 13, verse 8, I'm going to read from the New King James Version because I really love the way it sounds here. He said, oh, oh, no one anything except to love one another. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, they are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Listen to verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness and lewdness and lust, not in strife and in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Look at verse eight, when he says, oh, no one anything. That's in the present imperative. It means don't go on and on and on owing other people money. And that brings us to our first pillar, which is freedom. Debt has the awesome power to deprive you and I of our freedom. Look at verse nine and 10. When he talks about the, these, these, these 10 commandments, he says, you know, thou shalt not steal, et cetera, et cetera. Then he says, thou shalt not covet. And we talked about this last, uh, last week, that contentment, contentment, a life free of covetousness is one of the real pillars of financial strength. But now look at verse 11 and 12. When he says, now it is time to awake out of your sleep. Your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. I don't know if you've ever heard this uh, about this in, in history books, but back in November the 12th of 1833, the greatest meteor shower in recorded history. You know, not these days, it's, uh, if, you, if you see uh, maybe a dozen shooting stars in an hour, you're like, man, that was amazing. That was fantastic. Well, on this particular night in 1833, somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 Shooting stars were recorded per hour. And this went on for hours all through the night. It was unimaginable. People said they had never seen rain fall as hard as they had seen the shooting stars so night and that night. And the sky was so bright that it actually was lighting up the interiors of people's homes. And people were frightened, obviously. They thought the world is coming to an end. And one woman ran into her boy's bedroom and he was sound asleep. And she said, wake up. The world is ending. And the poor little boy, he's kind of rubbing his eyes. He's kind of groggy. And he looked out his window and he saw these flashes of light and he ran to the window and he started jumping up and down. He was so excited. He said, is this the day? Is this the day that Jesus returns? Isn't it amazing the difference in perspective? One, the, the woman said, 
the world is ending. And the little boy said, Jesus is coming. And he was excited and she was afraid. You know, this world is not our home. We are strangers and aliens here, sojourners. Uh, We're just passing through. And Paul is seeking to build a sense of urgency into you and me as it concerns the way that we live. And when the Bible mentions sleep in this context, it means leading a spiritually lethargic life. And his message to the Romans is, we don't really have time for that. Uh, God will come at any moment. He says, wake up, get moving, live your lives in a way that honors him. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 says, we do not have much time left. So starting now, those who use the things of this world should live as if they were not dependent upon them because this world in its present form is passing away. I, you know, I don't know how that hits you, but boy, that, that hits me like a brick when I think about that. You know, how I live my life on a daily basis as if this world is all that there is. Now you might say, wait a minute, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago and he said the night was nearly over then. How could it be nearly over when 2,000 years have gone by? Remember what Jesus said on the cross. He said, it is finished. It is finished. There are no new promises to be made. There are no new covenants to be ratified. There are no new books to be added to the Bible. There are no new laws to be written. There are no new promises to be made. There are no new dispensations to come. And the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus is what Paul is talking about here. Back when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell my youth, imminent means any minute, the any minute return of Jesus. And every generation has been rightfully told any minute could be the minute that the Lord Jesus returns. How much time do we have left? Who knows? I would love for the Lord to come back while we're all in church together. I'd feel pretty good about that, you know? We all live every day on the edge of eternity. And the night may be over for every one of us, whether we're young or old. Job 14.5 says a person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months, and you have set limits that he cannot exceed. Paul is telling you and me, live a life that honors God and do it now. Don't wait for another day. Don't wait for tomorrow because tomorrow may not come. Look at verse 12. He says, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That word cast off is something like, you know, take take off a piece of clothing like a robe or a coat and just lay it aside. And the old way of dealing with God, the old way of dealing with people, the old way of dealing with family, the old way of dealing with money. He says, don't spend the precious time that you have left in your lifetime on earth, kind of wandering in the dark. He says, lay it aside. Or like Elsa would say, just let it go, all right? Let it go. You know, the works of darkness are all the things that people do who do not have the light to show them a better way. In Scripture, darkness is a metaphor for a life of futility. You're always moving, but you're never getting anywhere. You can't see where you're going. You're lost. You're wandering in circles, and nothing you do makes a difference. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, This I tell you, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. And so instead of complacently like tolerating the darkness, Paul says, go to battle against it. Put on the armor of light. And that word armor of light, the phrasing can also say weapons. Take up the weapons of light. This is a word picture of a person who's 
fully equipped to go to battle with the darkness of sin and the deception in our world today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said, the truth is that we lead normal lives, but the battle we are fighting is on the spiritual level and the very weapons, that word again, that he used in Romans. We are not those, are not, we use are not those of human warfare, but powerful in God's warfare. So the armor of light is what you might call in your life practical righteousness. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you have two kinds of righteousness. If you've asked Jesus to be your savior, number one, you have a what's called a positional righteousness. This is a, a righteousness, or you might say an innocence, a, a not guilty verdict that you've received from God. When you fully trust Jesus as your savior, he forgives you of all your sins. And if you've never made that decision, let today be the day. Don't wait for tomorrow. All right, cast off the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light, ask Christ to be your savior. If you've never done that, say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I know that I am. I've gone the wrong way. I'm tired of wandering around in the dark. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to be my savior, to be my Lord. I want to follow you. I want to walk in the light. He will do that for you today. But then there's another thing you have, which is practical righteousness. And this is when you put your position into practice as a Christian. You are righteous. Your sins are forgiven. And so then you are filled with the Spirit of God. And when you're filled with the Spirit of God, that means you can, you can open your Bible and you can read your Bible and you can see the truth about reality. You can see the truth about life, family, marriage, everything, even money, even possessions, even time. And so you have the power now to live it out. First Timothy chapter six, Paul said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people who are eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness. Can't you just see the apostle Paul writing that down as he's writing that letter to Timothy? And when he wrote that word, those words flee, he probably like pressed his pencil onto the parchment, flee from all this, Timothy, just let it go. So practical righteousness, what is it? Living your life with excellence, living your life with wisdom, with skill in real world situations and applications. God provides his children with instructions on how to live a life that is strong, that is significant, that is eternal and wise and insightful. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus said, Everyone who listens to these words of mine and then puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. I know a lot of you are in home groups and uh, when you go to home group, you're going to see a great video. You might have already seen it. We watched it last week, but incredible, incredible picture of Galveston Island when Hurricane Ike came through. There was one man who built his house on a deep, deep foundation made of concrete. And when Hurricane Ike came through, every house on the island was wiped out. And there was one house left standing. It is amazing. Why? He built his house on the rock and not on the sand. For a follower of Jesus to prosper, 
you and I, we have to live out our position, righteousness, in a practical way. Try to live a righteous life. And so we have to build our life on the foundation of the words of Jesus. This is true in our way we spend our time. This is true in the way we spend our heart, our affections, our energy, but also our money and our possessions. Did you know of the 37 parables that Jesus told, over half of those parables deal with the money and possessions. In our time and honor, it is imperative for you and me to have a good grasp of all that Jesus said about financial strength. And so with that said, the most important thing Jesus ever said about money and possessions is the first thing that he said in public about it. He laid the foundation for financial freedom in his first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Look up on the screen. He said in Matthew chapter 6, don't pile up treasures on earth where moth and rust can spoil them and thieves can break in and steal. But keep your treasure in heaven where there is neither moth nor rust to spoil it and nobody can break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, you may be certain that your heart will be there too. You know, I, I have to confess to you, I read that passage so many times and sometimes I just like skim over it or it just goes through me like, you know, water through a pipe, you know? That is a profound statement. There's really nothing else like it in any of the other world religions. It's so, again, so wise, so insightful, and so philosophically profound. It really defines the reality of our time on earth. And so Jesus is pointing out three critical truths about living life detached from this world that we live in. Number one, he talks about the eternity perspective. All right. He says, don't pile up treasures on earth where moth and rust can spoil them and thieves can break in and steal. Uh, Don't do this now, but get on your phone sometime this afternoon. There's an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. I'll bet John knows about it. Okay, I'm not not saying anything about your sneakers, John. No, I'm not. Okay, but uh, this man who's not a believer, he noticed a guy on cable TV one time wearing some really nice shoes, and so he looked them up on Amazon, and they were worth a bunch of money. So he starts, he kind of becomes obsessed with this. How much are these, you know, <clears throat> big time pastors spending on their shoes? And so there's this Instagram account, Preachers and Sneakers. It's going to make you mad if you look. I'm just going to tell you, it's going to make you really angry. Okay. Uh, I got boots at Cavenders. Okay, I'm not a part of it. <laughs> but these guys are wearing sneakers in the pulpit. There's one pastor who has a pair of sneakers on that costs $5,600. Tennis shoes. There's another one, number two in line, $3,700. Number three on the list, his shoes cost $1,099, Stephen Furtick has a pair of shoes on that cost $965. Incredible. See, there's something about us that we just want to proclaim to other people, hey, look at me. Look at my power to purchase, all right? You can see it in my clothes. You can see it in my car. You can see it in my phone. You can see it in my stuff. Everything about me. It was the same thing, same way in Jesus' day. Expensive clothing was a favorite way of displaying your wealth. And Jesus is trying to get across to us, excess is not the same as success. And an excess mindset It's incredibly foolish to live this way. Have you ever really looked at a moth? I mean, what a loser in the animal kingdom, honestly. I mean, 
the moth, you know? No bright colors like butterflies. They're not fast like dragonflies. They don't have a stinger, you know, like a bee or a hornet, anything like that. And they're like the dumbest thing in the animal kingdom. Have you watched a bug zapper? Should we call it a moth zapper? Because no other bug goes near, the, <laughs> goes near the bug zapper except moths. They're like the Lloyd and Harry of the animal kingdom. They really are. But I think Jesus intentionally chose the moth as a culprit here because it drives the point home that the riches of this world, they're incredibly fragile. They're so feeble and frail, and it's just futile to accumulate these things because something as small and as insignificant as a moth can take the riches of this world away from you. And if something as insignificant as bugs are going to take away the riches of this world, death certainly will. You know, when John Rockefeller died, if you had taken the money he had in the early 1920s and put it in today's terms, he was worth $400 billion, by far the richest man who's ever lived. And when he died, a group of reporters asked his accountant how much he left behind. And his, his accountant said passionately, all of it, gentlemen, all of it. That's what he left behind. James said it this way, you rich people, listen to me. Weep and wail over the memories, miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted away. Your clothes have been eaten by moths. Your gold and silver are covered with rust. And this rust will be a witness against you. When? When you stand before God. You have piled up riches in these last days. What does he mean by last days? These are the, this is the last era of human history that we're living in. Jesus could return at any minute. Now, I realize this is an enormously difficult task. It really is. But we must learn to think of ourselves from an eternal perspective. Think of our lives as a hyphen and a line, all right? Actually, I shouldn't say line. It's a ray for most of you who are into geometry. A ray is a line that goes on and on and on into infinity. And you see the hyphen. That's your lifetime. And the ray is your lifespan. Those two things are not the same. Your earthly life is your hyphen on your gravestone. You know, whenever I'm asked to do a funeral, and I'm always so honored to do so, I don't know why I started doing this, but I get on this age calculator on the internet, and I calculate exactly how long that person was on earth. The last funeral that I did, a man who walked this earth for 60 years, eight months, and 17 days. Not all that long. Eternity is the line or the ray. It goes on and on and on in that direction. But the direction of the ray is determined by the hyphen. That's what Jesus is trying to drive home to us. The direction the ray is going to go is determined by the hyphen. Jesus told a parable of a man who was suddenly blessed with a huge windfall. He had an enormous crop. He was wealthy overnight. And this is what he said. This is what I will do. I'll, tell, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'm going to store all my grain and all my goods. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own who, what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
when, when, when God blesses us with an inheritance or some kind of other windfall, what's our first response? Oh, I got I to gotta pack this away. I got to squirrel this away. Jesus says, no, keep some for yourself, absolutely, but be rich toward God as well. Jesus was the wisest, most brilliant man who's ever lived. His financial advice said, don't base your financial decisions on here and now, but base them on then and there. Luke 16, 9, he said this in another parable. Eventually, money will be useless to you, but if you use it generously to serve others, you'll be welcomed joyfully into your eternal destination. So that's the eternity perspective. But he also talked about the eternity priority. When he said, keep your treasure in heaven where there is neither moth nor rust to spoil it and no one can steal it. Imagine, uh, you know, you're paying for a week-long stay in a VRBO, okay? You know, the house is okay, but you're like, you know, I could really make this a lot better, you know? So you think to yourself, I'm going to make this house awesome. And so you go to Home Depot and you buy tools, you buy materials, you've been working on the house. And man, you're going hard, man. You're staying up late at night and, you know, you get new fixtures, new wallpaper, new paint. You knock out a wall here, put up a new wall over there. You go to Ikea, you get a bunch of new furniture. You go to Lowe's and you get a bunch of new plants. You put plants in the yard, put some potted plants in the house. And the owner comes to you after you've been there, let's say a week, and he says, hey, uh, it's time for you to leave, bro. I mean, my next tenant's going to be here tomorrow. And you're like, I can't leave. What about all my hard work? What about all the money that I spent? All the stuff that I bought? And the owner says, uh, hey, I guess you don't understand how this works. This is not your home. This is mine. All that time, energy, and money, you have to leave it all behind. You look like a fool. Like, well, I'm taking my potted plant. I'm taking that, you know? Jesus' goal for you and for me is an entirely different life vision for our time, our energy, possessions, pocketbooks, everything. You see, in the American economy, we work for wealth. But in the kingdom economy, wealth works for us. And so Jesus is trying to say, live for a greater wealth than those who love the things of this world. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he said to Timothy again, tell those who are rich in this world's wealth to do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. And if they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. For the people who don't understand this, the people that the Bible says, the people of this world, the boundaries of their existence are that hyphen, birth and death. And the only things that are important to them are the things that lie between these two events. But if you know Jesus as your Savior, and you know this world is not your home, the boundaries of your existence are so much wider, so much more vast than anyone else. And you have to think about the future, all of it, not just that period of time from 65 to maybe 85 or 90, that retirement. We're always doing all kinds of financial planning for that. Jesus is trying to say, no, you need to do some financial planning for after you're gone from this earth. Prepare for eternity. This life is the preparation for a much wider, more expansive life to come. And if you truly believe that, it really changes your priorities. 
Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will will inherit eternal life. So the eternity axiom is this. Use money. Absolutely. Use it while you have it to accomplish something extraordinary, something eternal, something lasting. Use money now to do earthly good so that you can gain eternal glory because money can transcend life. Your energy can transcend life. Your talents can transcend life. Your time can transcend life. A.W. Tozer, fantastic Christian writer and thinker. He said, as base a thing as money often is, it can be transmuted into everlasting treasure and any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. In that last line, great. Whatever is given to Christ, your time, your energy, possessions, your affections, whatever is given to Christ is touched with immortality. Use what God has entrusted to you to, to spread the truth, to feed the hungry, body and soul. Because a day will come that all these things, they won't be of any use to you any longer unless you have used them properly during your lifetime. Revelation 14, 13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die from now on in the Lord. And the Spirit says, yes, they will rest from their hard work and the reward of all they have done stays with them for their deeds will follow them. How often have we seen people lose everything? Maybe there was a crooked accountant somebody embezzled from their business, bad investment, bad economy, a fire, a storm, hurricane or a tornado or a flood. Most Americans are missing their opportunity to earn their greatest fortune. You can earn a great fortune if you send it on ahead of you and don't try to hold it on behind. C.S. Lewis said this, nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. I had to read that twice, (laughs) okay? Nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. And the last thing is this, the eternity principle. Because Jesus said this, wherever your treasure is, you may may be certain that your heart will be there too. Years ago, there was a Sunday school teacher named Mrs. Johnson And she had the children's Sunday school class gathered around her. And the topic was missionaries. And she asked these eager kids, would you give a million dollars to the missionaries overseas? And they said, yes. Would you give a thousand dollars to all the missionaries overseas to help them spread the truth of the love of Jesus? Yes, Miss Johnson. She said, would you give a hundred dollars to the missionaries to spread the love of Jesus all over the overseas? They said, yes. And then she said, would you give $1 to the missionaries, she asked. And the kids got real quiet. And she's like, what happened? And she looked over a little boy named Johnny. He said, Johnny, why did everybody get so quiet? He said, well, 
I can't speak for the others, Miss Johnson, but I didn't say yes that time because I actually have a dollar. <laughs> I heard someone say one time, money isn't everything, but it's way ahead of whatever's in second place. <laughs> and Jesus is really trying to communicate to you and me a very important principle of life that money is a heart issue. Money, like nothing else, can get a grip on our heart, our very heart. And it is possible for money to occupy such a big place in your heart that it can become your first love. Again, another letter to Timothy. Paul said this, Know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. And Jesus often spoke about the temptation that we all face, and that is to fall in love with our money. Use money, absolutely. Spend it, save it, earn it, grow it, but don't love it. You never want to become overly attached to things and money. And we think about being really attached to money. We often have this, this image in our minds of you know, someone who goes out and just spends enormous amounts of money on all kinds of luxuries and, and things like that. But you know, there are a lot of people out there that really, really love money, but don't spend it. You know, we call them misers. You know, and Guinness Booker World Records has the world's greatest miser. Her name was Hetty Green. Uh, she was born into a wealthy family back in the mid-1800s. She had a very religious upbringing, very religious woman. She took $5 million she inherited from her father, and she grew it to $200 million back in 1916. So that'd be worth $5 billion today. And during the Gilded Age, she was known as the richest woman in America. But despite her wealth, she was known for going to extreme measures to like hang on to every penny. She never turned on the heat in her home. She never used hot water. Can't imagine that. She ate a ham sandwich and an onion every day for lunch. She must have been really pleasant to be around. <laughs> she wore one old black dress, and she only replaced it after it was just in tatters. And her nickname was the Witch of Wall Street because she dressed in that same black dress every day. Most tragically, she had an adult son who broke his leg. And she searched and searched for a free clinic because she didn't want to spend money getting his leg reset. And she searched so long for a free clinic, eventually gangrene set in and he had to have his leg amputated. Now, I don't know what happened to the billionaire heiress, Hetty Green, but I can be certain of one thing, that uh, she didn't have a generous heart. What a terrible thing it would be to stand before the Lord Jesus and have him look at me with this puzzled look and say, you know, Les, that was a remarkable performance. It really was. But how did you miss the entire point of why I prospered you? Why I gave you life and energy and breath and the ability to work? How did you miss the entire point? We're all moving closer to that inevitable day when everything that we own, everything that we have, will mean nothing. And the only thing that will matter is what we've done. What we have won't mean anything. What we have done will mean everything. And we'll stand there without a cent. No bank account, no property. Only our character 
and our conduct. Jesus talked about this day in Matthew chapter 25. As the people are lined up, he says to the righteous, there at the judgment seat, Matthew 25, my father has blessed you. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you took me into your home. I needed clothes, you gave me something to wear. And whatever you did for one of my brothers or sisters, no matter how unimportant they seemed, you did for me. So the principle is this. Wherever you choose to put your money, your heart has to follow. Your heart has to follow. And so with that said, I want us to think about this as we leave today. God places money in our hands, not so that we can love it, but so that we can express our love for him. Let's bow our heads today. With every head bowed, every eye closed. As I said earlier, I, I know this is a really heavy topic. I understand. Really heavy topic. But it's so, so important. I mean, you see the you see the consequences. You see the stakes. So incredible. And I, I just want to reassure everybody here that Jesus is not saying sell everything you have and you know and you know move to Gaza to be a missionary. You know, that's not what the Lord is saying here. He might be saying that to you. And if he does, go. By all means go, because the place that you so desperately want to be is the center of God's will. I want that for you. I want that for me. I hope I'm always being sensitive to that, but sometimes that involves letting go. Letting go. This world is not my home. Living for eternity. For that eternal home, that eternal life to come. Because again, the hyphen determines the direction of the ray. So this morning, I just want to ask you to go before the Lord in a real quiet way and just ask the Lord to impress upon your heart. Just say, Lord, are there some places in my life where I'm clinging too tightly to this present world? Or are there some places where I'm so attached? Lord, I want to be detached from worldly things. So ask the Lord to show this to you today. I'll be quiet for a moment or two. Then I'll pray for us, and we'll go to the next part of our service this morning. Lord Jesus, I know that you know how Tremendously challenging this is, Lord Jesus, to be able to separate our thoughts, our minds, and our very heart from all the things that are going on around us in this world and all that it offers. Lord Jesus, so many of those things are are really, really good. It's just a challenge, Lord Jesus. And I just ask you, Lord, to come and and, and move in all of our hearts in such a way, Lord, that, that our affection for you could grow to such a degree that, Lord, it would be an an easy thing to let go of lesser things because our love for you is so tremendous. It's overwhelming. And so, Lord, I just ask that for all of us here today 
that we might have a greater vision of our lives, a greater vision of you, that we might fall in love with you in a new and fresh way and let go of this present world that we live in because of it. Let's pray this in Jesus' name today. Thank you, Jesus.